Hello all, Happy New Year. Welcome to a different edition of Beyond the News. I'm going to give my voice a break and I've deliberately put together my pick of the podcasts of the last couple of weeks or so, deliberately designed so you can share them with as many people as possible far and wide. Many people now are starting to question the mainstream media, but they don't go want to go all the way down the rabbit hole of the conspiracy theories. Well, I've got for you a series of guests today that should help be able to bridge that gap. Up first, we're going to be listening to comedian Jimmy Dore, and all the clips can be found on the comment section of wherever you found this podcast, hopefully. Speaking of which, I'm going to be continuing to do the normal podcast. The reason I'm doing this is there's so much to cover and I'm bringing on more guests than ever before, hopefully in the new year. So something needed to give. I couldn't continue to give my news by reading it out, have the guests, listeners corner and play the podcast clips that I wanted. So this is a pick of the podcasts. A separate spin-off where I'm going to be playing them in their long-form format. So Jimmy Dore will be up first, a comedian. Then it will be Mark Sharman, former head of ITV News and Sky News. Well, he'll let you know exactly what his roles were in the interview, being interviewed by Anna Breeze. Then Tucker Carlson from Fox News. And finishing will be Dr. Robert Malone being interviewed by a former mainstream Um, news anchor herself and she'll give you all her credentials in the interview as well this show's approximately going to come in at about two hours so strap in this will be the last that you hear of me happy new year and i hope you like the new format and the new the old show beyond the news will be returning in the middle of january thanks please check out our beyond the news telegram group at beyond the news gym and on facebook parlor and gab beyond the news although i think one of them might be under my name jim grant so thanks for listening look me up on the new medias that i'm sure will soon take off at some point (laughs) more so than they already are because people are starting to question the mainstream media and that's what this podcast is about using accredited mainstream media to be able to question the mainstream media thanks for listening hope you enjoy the show so now what I've said what I've said here is that if you're getting your information about COVID and the vaccines from the establishment news, you're being lied to. And you're being lied to at the top of their lungs constantly 24-7 with very earnest looking people who you would never think would lie to you. Like how about Rachel Maddow? Come on. She wouldn't lie. She's a nerd. Well, watch her lie nonstop about COVID means that instead of the vaccine being able, excuse me, it means for instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person to person, spreading and spreading, sickening some of them, but not all of them. And the ones that it doesn't sicken don't know they have it. And then they give it to even more people because they didn't recognize they were right. Instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person, potentially mutating and becoming more virulent and drug resistant along the way. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. That's not true. That was never true. That's not true. That was never true. This is from uh, the end of March, almost April of this year, 2021. She's saying this. That's a lie. That's medical misinformation. And if this video of her saying this is up on YouTube, which it might be, they'll never take it down. 
but this is straight up 100% medical misinformation. And this is why people hate the unvaccinated, because they listen to a lying propagandist like Rachel Maddow tell them the people who aren't va are vaccinated are the ones not stopping COVID. This is all garbage. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. That is a lie. That is false. That is medical misinformation brought to you by Pfizer. She gets $30,000 a day to lie for Pfizer and the military industrial complex, and she's doing it. She's lying to you right now. I cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. Not true. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. That is not what that means. Why is it I knew that in my garage? But you don't know it with your $30,000 a day and your tens of millions of dollars in help, in staff. How many producers do you think she has? 20? How many interns that work there? 50? How many people work at that show? 100? She doesn't know this is a lie? I know it's a lie. I knew it was a lie. You can't vaccinate your way out of a pande this pandemic. You can't do it. Will she ever correct it? No. You know what else she'll never correct? The lie she told about the hospital in Oklahoma being overrun with people taking horse ivermectin instead of human ivermectin. She she lied about that on Twitter. It's still up. You know who got taken down from Twitter? Dr. Robert Malone, the guy who invented the vaccine technology. Because he's telling the truth about it. You know who's leap? They leave up her because she's lying at the behest of Big Pharma, which owns the media. That's there's no other way to put that. She's lying. And she'll never correct it. She'll never go, hey, but remember what I said that the vaccine will end the pandemic if you just get vaccinated? That was a hundred percent lie. That wasn't true at all. Remember when I said that if, uh, if 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 you get vaccinated, you can't get infected and it won't. That, that was also a lie. Remember when I said it, that it, the, you can't be a host and you can't transmit it to someone else if you're vaccinated. That's also a lie. You think she's ever going to say that? Never. Because Rachel Maddow has less integrity than Alex Jones at this point. Alex Jones has been more right about this stuff than her. That's for sure. That's how bad they are. If somebody gave me $30,000 and put it in my pocket, you could see it hanging out, and I came on there, somebody from Big Pharma, and I started telling you all this stuff, would you believe me? If I got a $30,000 check, stick it out of my pocket before I sat down, every day they gave me one, would you believe what I said? I wouldn't, but people believe her. And that's what she looks like when she's lying for $30,000 a day at the behest of the establishment. Hello, everyone. It's the 30th of December 2021, and this is an exclusive. I'm speaking to Mark Sharman, a former boss for ITV and Sky News. He's 71. He lives in South Sea in Portsmouth. He's a dad and a granddad. Um, 
And I have done interviews with journalists before. Sue Kirk used to work for the BBC. David Rose used to work for the BBC now at the Mail. But I've never spoken to someone who had your position, um, who was at such a senior position in a mainstream media news organisation. I do appreciate you left ITV in 2008. I did as well, actually. We know a lot of the same people. I was very happy at ITV, actually. Um, and then I went to the BBC as a presenter for BBC South today. But I did enjoy my time at ITV and I still talk to people there. Very fond memories. And I think you have as well. Um, there was a lovely, lovely family feel to, to where I was working at ITV in Birmingham and Oxford. Um, we've got some questions. I just let everyone know you are not particularly comfortable on camera. Um, like me, I think I was very happy doing the media training with corporate clients, showing people how to film and edit at speed, professional quality content with their mobiles. But something happened, didn't it, in March 2020, where we felt something wasn't quite right when it came to what we were hearing from the mainstream media and uh, I think the mother in me took over and I think you know, the father and grandfather in you has taken over and you're you're doing this because you feel you really need to. And I think it's a very important voice that we need to hear. Um, I know you have written an article and uh, approached a number of mainstream media organisations, and I believe you're going to be doing other media interviews potentially in 2022. But I do have to thank you, Mark, for talking to me um, exclusively so we get that first kind of idea. You may, you may love this, Mark, and, and just carry on doing lots of interviews. I hope you do. Um, but it's it's wonderful to actually, we've been talking a lot, haven't we? We've, we've developed mm -hmm. a bit of a friendship. Um, and, you know, I am so desperate to hear your views. So, you know, we've what I'm going to do is ask you some of those questions that we've agreed upon before. Um, and I'm going to make sure you see the, the interview before we publish to see that you're happy with it. So the first question I've got is what was your role at Sky and ITV News? Well, they were they were slightly different, and I mean, at, at ITV, um, as you know, the the news is is uh, produced by ITN, um, but I was the executive at ITV Network, um, responsible for uh, the budgets for them and also for the overseeing the content. It wasn't a hands-on role, but it, it was a responsibility. At Sky, um, slightly different because Sky News is in-house. Um, we did have an excellent head of news in Nick Pollard. Um, but again, I had an executive role and did get a little bit more involved in the look of the channel and one or two hirings and and the direction of where we were going now and again. But um, I have I've also run newsrooms myself in the past, um, uh, sort of hands on editing. What does an executive role mean? Um, <laughs> it generally means at Sky, it would generally mean sorting out any major problems if there were any. Um, you know, when from time to time you do get issues, and it's uh, it was I was between the chief executive and the mm -hmm. head of news, so you know we we I was a go between really. Um, Pretty big job, and in ITV you were. Well, yeah, we did. Content. We would we would discuss budgets, and we would we would discuss content, and certainly we had a relaunch, which I got quite heavily involved in because the look of channels is something that's quite close to me. Because I actually developed and launched Sky, Sky Sports News as well, which is a much more hands-on role. Wow, you had an incredibly senior role at these organisations. Um, um, overseeing content at ITV um, and budgets and probably reputation management, dealing with any big major issues that may impact the brand, I should imagine, as well, you know, anything that, that goes viral on Twitter or social media in terms yeah. of... Anything yeah, well, that social media wasn't quite such a big issue as it, as it is now, but more so at Sky. I mean, Sky was much more of a, an in-house operation. Of 
course. You know, we had some big stories as well. You know, we had we had 9-11, we had the Iraqi wars, Baghdad, all of that. So it was quite a big, big time to be there. So would you be involved in the recruitment of, say, the main presenters and journalists, uh, regions, the regional main presenters or not the national so presenters much. or correspondents? Not so much. No, not so much. I mean, there were a couple I was involved in. Um, uh, certainly at Sky one or two. Um, and uh, Julie Etching was probably my best signing at ITV. You know, I'm a big fan of hers. Fantastic. Um, I think it comes down to likability a lot of the time, doesn't it, with presenters? It's um, yeah. it's like building that trust with the public and, and making them feel entire, especially in a time of crisis. This mm. person is is telling me the truth. Um, I can trust this media brand. <clears throat> Thank you so much. So what, why are you talking to me? What are your concerns, Mark? Well, I, I, Anna, I feel as though we, for freedom of speech, the impartiality of reporting, um, the honest debate is all under attack. And I feel as though it's some kind of pincer movement. Um, on the one hand, you've got big tech through YouTube and um, Facebook and Twitter. You know, they are cancelling people and they're using these terrible terms, misinformation, um, conspiracy theorists, just to dismiss anything that doesn't fit the, the narrative, uh, you know, and that's a, a grave concern to me. I mean, you know, Britain is the cradle of democracy. I fear at the moment we're on a march towards the death of it. Um, and it's a death by strangulation of free speech. And that's as a journalist of 50 odd years, that is a real concern to me. Unfortunately, um, mainstream media is the other side of the pincer movement in that they're also only telling one side of a story over COVID. Um, you know, there, there appears to be um, a worldwide narrative and mainstream media are signed up to it. Um, and I, it it's, it's, um, they're acting as government cheerleaders and that's not the role, I don't think, of mainstream media or any journalist. Our role is to question, is to, to um, they should be questioning it and holding them to account, not helping bring the population to heal, which is what's been happening, I'm, I feel. So I need to ask you why you think the mainstream media organisations, or as I like to call them, sort of the legacy media brands have been around for a long time, they've built up this trust. Why do you think they aren't doing the good job of journalism and holding power to account? Well, to be cynical, Anna, um, the government have spent about £500 million so far on COVID advertising, um, and most of that has gone to broadcasting and mainstream media. Um, it's hard, I think, in current times to 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 go against that. Um, it offends principles, but I think that's probably a reality. However, I don't think that's the only cause, and I, I would point you to, out to... Uh, um, they don't call it a rehearsal, but they had a simulated event which was held in October 2019, just before the outbreak. Um, it was a simulated event which, funny enough, was based on a coronavirus outbreak from China. Um, it was called Event 201, uh, and it was a simulated global coronavirus pan pandemic exercise organized, organized by the World Economic Forum, the Bill Gates Foundation, and John Hopkins Center for Health Security. Now they advised governments all over the world on what they should do and, and included in that was this advice. Flood the media 
with fast, accurate, and consistent information, while the media com companies themselves should commit to ensuring that authoritative messages are prioritized and that false messages are suppressed, including through the use of technology. Now, who decides what's false? And this is at the core of my argument on everything about this, this cancelling and this misinformation. I mean, who is deciding what's information? You have some truly world-class medical scientific experts who are arguing against the narrative, and they're not being listened to. In fact, worse than that, they're being silenced. Um, you know, Dr. Robert Malone actually invented the RMNA vaccine, and he's spoken up to warn about some of the things that may develop from it. And he's been cancelled on Twitter. I mean, this is outrageous. You know, you are, you are just cancelling people's opinions for the sake of the narrative. And, you know, maybe the clue is in that, that um, simulation that happened just before the pandemic started. But Ofcom, too, over here have, have joined in with it. Um, you know, Ofcom has instructed broadcasters to be alert to health claims related to the virus, which may be harmful, medical advice, which may be harmful accuracy or material misleadingness in programs in relation to the virus or public policy relating to it. Well, I'm sorry, but that's, that is Ofcom telling broadcasters, don't listen to other arguments. You know, they're closing down debate. You know, it just isn't right. It's a dereliction of duty, in my, in my opinion, of journalists and broadcasters and, and newspapers not to investigate both sides of a story. Well, that's harmful, isn't it? To not investigate both sides of the story, it leads to panic and erosion in trust, I think, in these media organisations. So my question is, why are you speaking out now, Mark? Um, I think in the end, it was because of the demonisation of people who chose not to have a vaccine. Um, you know, it's internationally accepted that you can choose whether or not to have medication put into your body. And that is being ignored um, and what's happening around the world is you know this rejection of body autonomy is is, is scary um, i mean what we're seeing in austria you know from february you can be fined and then imprisoned if you're not vaccinated in australia they've started internment camps for goodness sake for people who haven't been vaccinated or pe people who they think even haven't been vac uh, vaccinated um, in Australia, they shot their own citizens with rubber bullets. In Austria, um, they are, as I say, they're putting them in prison. In Holland, they shot their own citizens just across the water from here with real bullets and injured injured citizens. Um, what would happen here if that had happened on the streets of Sheffield or, or Manchester or, or London? You know, how would we have reported that? Because the media seems to have lost its moral compass. You know, that those um, demonstrations in Holland and Belgium were described by our, our press here as mob rule. You know, these are people just making a point about basic freedoms. I'm not surprised they get out of hand sometimes, by the way, but that's another thing. Um, but we, we, we do, we've lost sight of the fact that, that our freedoms are being eaten away. You know, this new norm, it, it's, it's, it's just... You can't accept it uh, because what comes next? You know, we're being conditioned uh, to a position. But I mean, it's, it's the same here in the UK. Um, there have been several what have been described as anti-vax marches in around the country, and particularly in London. 
Um, they're not necessarily anti-vax at all, actually. Quite a lot of the people on the marches have been vaccinated. They're just against mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports. Um, and I went to investigate one last week in, or two weeks ago. There were, probably, there were tens of thousands of people and they were ordinary people. They were intelligent people. They were families. They were all kinds of uh, ages, uh, ethnic background, all kinds of ordinary people. And it was a generally peaceful, good-humoured march through London. There was one little skirmish involving maybe one or two people at the start, and that's what got reported. Violence on anti-vax rally. It's not an anti-vax rally, and it was, in general, very peaceful. The, other, the flip side of that is these protests in England have hardly been reported on the BBC or Sky or anywhere, and yet both of those channels go big on... Um, um, climate change protest marches because they're pet subjects of theirs you know and that's again what to me is is not acceptable you can't pick and choose which protest you're going to report on just because you agree or, or just because that's one of your pet projects you know um it, it just isn't right uh, so it's bias i mean it's just biased reporting i mean if i can just show you the daily mirror from this morning you know They've gone big on it, right? Blocking the road to freedom. Anti-vax mob cause chaos. Labour call to take web virus conspiracies. To tackle them, sorry. Web virus conspiracies. And inside, you know, the, the whole thing is turned to a war. You know, on a war footing. And funny enough, on the back, there's another of those adverts by the government. But... I actually don't agree with what they did. The protest, I think, was wrong. Um, I don't think we should any, but I don't think anybody should be protesting against people taking a vaccine. That's their choice. You know, we're talking about freedoms here. If you want to take the vaccine, that's your choice. And whatever that protest was, they should not have stopped people getting a vaccine. And they well, it was a testing centre. I looked yeah, at the footage. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a vaccination centre. It well, was a testing centre, yeah. and it well, was very interesting to see why how all the media were there and covering yes. it, where they weren't at others. It must be incredibly. Yes. I, I'll tell you, you Mark, uh, your words. They just they they get to the core of me, and I think mm. any journalist watching this, you know, yeah. I think this man talks a huge amount of sense. Yeah. But on that, on that protest, I don't think that protest was right. I don't think you should interfere with no. people who want to get tested or want to have a jab. And actually, but what it does, it plays into the media's narrative. And, you know, they're calling here a, a, a baying mob, it's described. But actually, if you look at the pictures, there's a bunch of middle-class people, middle-aged people. Um, so no, I don't agree with it, but that's the angle they're always going to pick up. And that no one in my, in my knowledge has ever talked to these anti-vaxxers on these marches to see what their what their um well i did i did and that's the day oh, I, I, lost I know my you do. I'm, I'm talking about i'm talking about mainstream yeah well they have done a little bit of gb news um that's the the thing is some have been okay mark would you say has the telegraph been better has the mail been better um i think there's been a few articles just recently um that have begun to open up a little bit but the general feeling is still you know get boosted get boosted get boosted um which 
you know, it's uh, it seems like a drive that's still coming from the government. Um, yeah. You mentioned GB think... News. There. You mentioned GB News there. Actually, last night, I thought Nigel Farage produced a breakthrough broadcast. Um, you know, he did ask the questions. He asked the questions about should he get a booster um, if the vaccine doesn't stop me getting the virus and it doesn't stop me passing it on. Why would I get the booster? And he had a couple of experts on there who who um, were very good at explaining things. And that really, that's the first time. And whatever you think of Nigel Farage, you know, he was brave and he got out there and he did ask the questions. And I hope that's the start of a, a change of gear, really. Um, yeah. GB News is a really interesting one. And I definitely think we're all a product of the media brand we trust. If you're like my mum and dad, you read the mail every day. If you tune to the BBC Sky every day, if you're following um, talk radio or LBC or me, you have a different feel and then it's kind of splitting yeah. the public and there's not many are there that are kind of like impartial and balanced. And uh, I mean, I've tried my hardest, but I'm very congruent with Mark and I find it very difficult not to show my feelings and my passion and my anger sometimes. Um, when the, that's what, by that's providing what... a counter narrative, just it wasn't there. So I have been as much as I can be the counter narrative and it's, it's hard. But that's why it's important that the main broadcasters actually um, start looking at some of the other side of things. You know, there, there are some serious, serious papers being done by, you know, top level world scientists and they're looking at the data and they're looking at uh, the results, you know, and they are saying that there are dangers in this vaccine and they've got the figures to prove it and they're worried about what might happen. Now, I think that if you're going to vaccinate children, I should say here, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor and I'm not taking sides. My only argument is, please tell us both sides of the story. You know, I'm looking at this from a media point of view. But if there is this scientific evidence um, and it's fairly convincing, it should be being discussed because um, any parent in particular who's, who's wanting to decide whether or not to vaccinate their children, I mean, number one, I don't think, personally don't think children need a vaccine because they don't suffer from the from the virus particularly and probably won't pass it on but the point is if you're making that decision it should be an informed decision and they're not being informed because they're not being made aware of some of the things that have gone wrong and are going wrong um you know and, and again that's a concern but it, it's down to concern mark, to, no, no, mark this is really if serious I, if i were to say that i would be i would that word misinformation and conspiracy theorists would be plastered all over it and that's what's wrong it's lazy 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 to just dismiss things as conspiracies and misinformation don't say it's misinformation go find out go investigate you know ask some questions for yourself instead of sitting on your ass and just passing this on all the time i mean what's happened recently as well there's actually been not an exaggeration even there have been lies told I think the Sunday Times used, used a, f a figure of 90% of all people in in um, ICU were unvaccinated. It was actually 48% at the time, but that was in the Sunday Times. It was then repeated by Jeremy Kyle, um, by um, ITV, I think this morning, by Lorraine, uh, by ITV, uh, BBC News, ITV News and Sky. They all kept on repeating that figure. Um, I contacted Sky actually, and to be fair to them, they did correct. But I don't know why. I mean, why are they not checking figures? Why are they just lifting it from one day to another? Um, government this ministers too. Government, government, government ministers also use that ninety percent, which is just—it just isn't true. It was forty-eight percent. 
Well, I think Boris even said it. Do, do you mind me just mentioning Jamie Jenkins, who was the former head of health yeah. analysis at the ONS? He's yeah. been good, hasn't he, in analysing yeah. the data. Certainly somebody who knows what he's doing. He's been mm. on the BBC before. He's kind of been challenging this 90%. This is a lie. You know, there's there's yeah, lies and then there's... Mm. Th th you said it's a concern, but I'm a mother, okay, with children, mm. 7, 9 and 12. Do I get them vaccinated or not? If I'm only hearing one side of the story, go and get them vaccinated, and it's not... I've not got all the information. That is really serious, Mark. Yes, These journalists need to realise how serious that is. It is. Well, I, I think, as the phrase before, it's a dereliction of duty because, you know, it's very easy to find out, very easy to find out that these tests, the, the clinical tests on the Pfizer um, vaccine, do not finish un until 2023. And worse than that, on children, they don't finish until 2025. So how can the government themselves use the phrase safe and effective? They don't appear to be particularly effective because they're not stopping the virus. And they certainly can't claim they're safe long term because they just don't know. And um, as I say, it's a dereliction of duty not to bring that into the public domain. And it, it does need to be in the public domain because I had a spat the other day with somebody on a website who basically said, oh, you just listen to you just listen to um, the Internet and people on the Internet, you know, people who are medical experts at night and plumbers and electricians by day. You know, that's ridiculous. But he won't believe it until it's on mainstream media, until the BBC tell him. Um, he won't believe it. And that's the problem. But you were aware of bosses. You were the ones hiring these journalists, or at least controlling the budgets. You were very senior, you know. <coughs> was is an important was. one. Was, 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 was. Um, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just ask well, you, have you spoken to anyone you used to work with? Because I yes. certainly have. Yes. Um, yes. ITV and Sky yes. and... What, yeah. What's kind of what's been the feedback? Well, at, at, at Sky, as I said, that we did complain through J Jamie Jenkins. You mentioned. I mean, Jamie's a genius, really. He's he's right on top of this. But we have mentioned it to to Sky, and they did correct. I've also asked Sky whether they wouldn't carry debate, giving it all sides of the story. Got no reply to that. But I mean, I know from individual stories that there are people in ITV regions who have been told do not bring to us any stories to do with vaccine injuries. In fact, I think one person got threatened with losing their job. But um, I know in newspapers, people have tried to correct copy, they've tried to balance it out, and they've been pulled back by bosses. And I know that um, I know that you yourself pitched a story with a widow of someone that that died from a, after having an ejection. Um, so she was told by doctors. I don't think they ever had the inquest yet, but that story was pitched to this morning. Didn't want to know. Um, I've personally tried to get a, a couple of articles away that I've written. Didn't, you know, didn't get them away anywhere. And there was a doctor who wrote a very good article about why the NHS doesn't need to keep vaccinating its staff. Went around most of the national papers, didn't get picked up. We've got no appetite for it, was one uh, was one thing back. So yeah, listen, I think our industry, our trade, actually, as I prefer to call it, um, is guilty because I think there are a lot of journalists within these organisations who know it's wrong and aren't speaking up. But equally, there are a lot of medics who also know it's wrong, who also aren't speaking up. You know, why? Don't know. Fear, fear of losing their job, fear of putting their head above the parapet. I'm not sure, but the people are there. 
Do you mind me asking what did they what was the response that when you contacted them with I know the NHS uh, immunologist and the others in your yeah. stories and articles did they respond or did they ignore you or did they just say we've got no appetite for this what was the no response? appetite usually no appetite I mean, yeah no appetite. <laughs> okay um, no I mean I, my particular article was due to go on the Sunday Express and then it got pushed out by something else so that could be real I don't know why not hmm. happens Okay, well, at least they got back to you and said they have no appetite for this, but we have an appetite for it, Mark. I'm just yeah. going to mention now, Jasmine Bertels. Um, you'll all recognise Jasmine. She's like the female Martin Lewis, um, well-known presenter. She is the admin for a journalism group that we're in, and uh, her email address is jasminebertels at gmail.com. And if any journalists are watching this and would like to contact Jasmine, please do, because she's the admin of this group, and we are growing, aren't we? Um, where we can talk freely. It's a support group, you know, but also taking action in um, because we do have the appetite for this, Mark, because we mm. we do understand the role of journalism and how important it is at the moment. Um, can you win back this trust once it's lost? You know, we're talking about if. if can I want to? Can we can these media organisations win back the trust? they've got, um, they, they've lost they have they have lost I, uh, yeah I, I think i think in any situation if you if you lose trust it's very hard to get it back um um you're right they have if you go out on the streets um you know people do not trust the mainstream media as much as they used to having said that a lot of people still do and that and they are believing what they're being told which is why it's really important that it's these organisations, the BBC, Sky, the main newspapers, actually put the other side of the story because they do carry huge sway still. Um, if, if some of the predictions from these scientists about the dangers of the vaccine come to fruition, then I think trust will go through the floor. And actually, um, I'm not sure if I was in charge of a newsroom that hadn't flagged up these dangers and they came to fruition, how I'd feel. Um, you would feel guilty for sure. Um, and actually you'd be implicated by your silence. Uh, and I think that's something that they should think about. That in news terms, COVID has been the gift that just keeps on giving, you know, I mean, it gives you a news story every single day. And unfortunately they, they're all easy, easy takes. It's all the government line and all, the, the positive stuff. Um, and I think most broadcasters have gone out of the way to find stories that support the, the narrative. Um, how many times have you seen someone in a hospital bed or some relatives of someone that's died saying, if only you'd taken the vaccine, if only you'd taken the vaccine. You know, where are the ones of the people suffering because they had the vaccine? Not interested, like your... Um, Charlotte Wright, like the, uh, the widow, the widow uh, of Dr. Stephen Wright. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned at Great Ormond Street Hospital. You, you, you she's in pain. Pick... No, no, no. The, yeah. the, that woman, you know, she she's in pain. Mm. And if she lived in many countries in Europe, if she did not get vaccinated, she wouldn't be able to go. Like we spoke to someone from Lithuania, she would be able to go to the cafe. I remember mean, talking yes. to you about that cafe, restaurant, shop, swimming. Yeah. Um, but would she take the risk when her husband's died following the yes. AstraZeneca vaccine? No, Lisa Shaw, BBC presenter, age forty-four. Yeah. No, with her husband, who's who's looking mm. after the kids now, um, yes. is is it right to mandate something where there is a risk? Um, but yeah, we did contact ITV this morning and the producers. Mm. Um, I know there's a lot of people at ITV and BBC, but it's quite uh, disjointed at the moment with all these different journalists. I know, Mark, if I was at the BBC still, 
I would have quietly produced, got together of a group, a community, and we'd have gone on strike, we'd have walked out. I would have done it, yeah? You, yes. Would you have done that? What can they do? They can, I don't join, know. Our, I mean, they was, can join our group. There was an interesting piece in The Spectator written by anonymously by someone at the BBC. I don't know if you saw it, but but he said this, that they'd created in the BBC a, 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 a huge culture of fear. So everybody was terrified of the vaccine. Uh, sorry, the... Uh, I'll rephrase that. Everybody was terrified of the virus. Um, and they had created this fear. Well, I think if, if you kind of in, instill that in people's heads to start with, that is the way they look at the story. You know, so I, I, I'm not suggesting everybody involved is in some sort of conspiracy to throw it back at them. I'm not. Um, I think a lot of people genuinely believe that the virus is very dangerous and this is the way out of it. And they might be right. That is, as I say, I'm not a scientist and I'm not you a doctor. Told that story, just, that I just want equal reporting. But the thing is, I always think about, I put myself in someone else's shoes and I think about Charlotte Wright hmm. um, and her husband who died. If you did put that on ITV this morning, it would put people off having the vaccine. Yes, and that, yes. It really would. Just yes. one little story. It would so they're, they're probably maybe they're thinking to themselves we have to ignore it because otherwise it create panic so they've taken this role of they're insulting the British public and treating us like children well that, it, that we, can't, be nothing, yeah, we can't no, balance up the risks you're absolutely right it isn't right uh, I've said three times I think that it's a derelict in your duty it's not right to suppress the word from the uh, simulation to suppress um information that might affect your decision about your own children it isn't right um, um and that is my main beef you know it, the, the vaccine may turn out to be perfectly safe um which is absolutely fair but it might not and that's why the debate should be had and also if the debate isn't had on mainstream media it just gives credibility and credence to the conspiracy theories so-called um elsewhere you know, if people don't see it reported, then they see, um, you know, sensible, experienced scientists giving another view somewhere else. It reduces the credibility all the time of mainstream media. What a crazy time. I we're going to say at the end of this interview um, is please download the entire interview and feel free to share no copyright issues please don't edit it though if you are please please share it in its entirety are you happy with that mark if people share this as long as it's not edited yes people put their own yes. branding across it and recap yes. you all up <laughs> but yes. i'm happy well, for it to be I, shared far and wide yes well I, I you said at the top i don't do a lot of television because for very good reason i, I work behind the scenes for very good reason so but it takes quite a lot for me to come out and say things on the on a camera. Oh, I've been working on you for a few months. Well, yeah, I've been it, working it's, on it's, you. <laughs> it's just reached a point where I got so cross, I felt I needed to say something. ...going on at CNN right now. In just the past week or two, two separate CNN producers have been accused of child molestation. One of them was a man called John Griffin. He was just indicted by a federal grand jury for attempting to, quote, induce minors to engage in unlawful sexual activity. We're not going to get into details. They're horrifying. He's been fired. Griffin used to work for Chris Cuomo. He bragged about working shoulder to shoulder with him. We'll leave it there. Then just days after that story, Project Veritas exposed another creep at CNN. They published graphic text messages and a video of a CNN producer, apparently CNN producer, fantasizing about molesting a child. 
Project Veritas said the producer also illicitly, allegedly sought explicit photographs of that child. So we called over to CNN to ask, is this one of your employees? We have the name, we're not gonna air it because none of this has gone to trial, but does he still work there? They didn't get back to us. But this seems like a real story. So to put it into context, as of today, there are more accused pedophiles at CNN than Americans who have died of the so-called Omicron variant that's supposed to be so deadly. Now that seems like news to us. You'd think CNN would be covering it. Like what the hell? How many companies can say that? But that's not what they're covering. If you were watching the Unix show over the weekend, you learned that it's actually Fox News that suffered a week of quote, embarrassing headlines. <laughs> Dr. Freud, we point up lots of examples of transference. That's when you take the things, the sins you've committed and accuse others of them. Nothing better than this example, ever. <laughs> so here we are. I finally get to meet you in person after all this. You were my first interview after leaving corporate controlled media. And here we are, you're just coming off of having an interview with Joe Rogan. So really been a wild ride, wouldn't you say? It has been, and I didn't know that was your first. I never would have guessed. Um, <laughs> it was a great interview and I enjoyed it and I've enjoyed every other one that we've ever had. I, just a pleasure. Well, it's an honor, obviously, to have you be my first um, interview, leaving corporate controlled media and going independent. So what was it like to reach that mark of getting interviewed by Joe Rogan? What was that like? Um, I don't know. It's kind of, it was a bit of pressure. I must have had 10 different people call me and coach me. And, and everybody has their own little angle. Like, oh, say this on Rogan, you know, pump this, uh, mention this website, name this person. Um, everybody wants the little plug. And, but I had some great coaching. I have a couple of seasoned media warriors, serious, experienced people. One of them runs a $150 million company that, that, spoke to me and kind of coached me on on this and and I also had uh, Peter McCullough call and and ask me to kind of ease over some of the statements he made when he was on Rogan about uh, one and done and and that now with Omicron that's not the case so 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 there was a lot of pressure and and um, excitement enthusiasm about the opportunity Rogan is totally chill. He's just there in the moment, relaxed, a fantastic interviewer. Just, and what surprised me, I was asked on, on another one uh, last night, what, what surprised you most about Rogan? He is completely up on all the information, and yet it's totally low-key. Um, he's very committed to speaking to a general audience it's core for him the idea of not playing into all this divisiveness he he is he is consciously intentionally a healer right now and um just a very centered um you know genuinely good person that the business about bringing his daughter's dog onto the set and then we shot a follow-on clip that pushed the the uh, rally that's going to be on January 23rd, and he brought uh, his the his daughter's dog Snoop the Chihuahua. On I mean it's just the way he is. Um, he's just kind of a sweet guy. 
uh, not at all what I expected. I expected more, you know, with the background in Taekwondo and all of that and, and surrounding himself. I mean, he's surrounded by ex-seals and, and some serious um, security capabilities. And that's kind of the world that he comes from. But there was none of that. He was just, I mean, you could sit on the couch and, and have a chat and, and kill a beer and and uh, wouldn't think anything of it. So just, very down to earth. Yeah, just, just a nice guy. Well, I imagine that you would have a little bit in common in the sense that you both came from very mainstream positions. I mean, you did work with the Department of Defense. Still doing. Still doing. And um, you came at this very fair and balanced and and Joe Rogan I would have considered mainstream but now here you have people saying he was taking horse paste and and he even said that he was warned you're crazy so it seems like you would have that in common that you came from just being what what society would consider consider normal to now you're getting attacks and called crazy both of you and actually a lot of others so there is kind of a fellowship that's being developed among those of us that have had these attacks, it's it's been amazing to participate in it. And with this group, this International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists that I serve as president for, we we tour, go from you know town to town and give our talks and do our training and that kind of stuff. What's amazing in my experience, it's it's I've never I've led many groups. Um, it's kind of part of what I do is assemble and lead teams to solve complicated stuff. The, all these people are so committed to the cause that there's it's like there's no ego. They just are are putting their shoulder to the wheel and getting the job done. And and um in a very decentralized way, it's it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's and it Christy, it plays into a theme that I've heard again and again. For instance, one of the groups I work with is Hippocrate in Italy. And uh, they're very committed to the model of not having traditional centralized leadership. Likewise, Tess Laurie and her group. Um, Tess serves as the main leader, but it's very decentralized. There's there is kind of a growing movement and awareness that part of the problem here is is the structure of how we have been building our organizations and and doing business in a in a deep profound way in a in a just a dissatisfaction with with what one sees at the world health organization and the cdc and the whole hhs structure in the united states where you have you know carefully controlled information only one leader is allowed to speak only one leader is allowed to to represent the position. That's, I think that is going to turn out to be one of the changes here, is as a growing awareness that that model is dysfunctional, broken, and it needs to be fixed. In light of your attacks and seeing how the mainstream media labels people and then tries to get these buzzwords going, has that changed your view? on other people that the media has gone after? Completely. <laughs> because you have people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or people like Alex Jones. Has this kind of made you think, well, maybe they're not as crazy as maybe I was led to believe before? So I'm going to share. So we did a little bit of a tour on the Hill um, a few weeks ago, and I met with various senators. And 
uh, so I walk in to Ron Johnson's office, and I had this mental image from the press of what I was going to encounter with Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson is basically an average Midwestern, straight arrow kind of good guy, um, open-hearted, uh, very down to earth. No, you know, I've dealt with the Hill for a long time, and I've seen some serious egos. Wasn't there? Uh, just, just a, a good guy. That's, I think that, you know. Yeah, there's been some hits and all this, and it's never fun to to take these arrows from the media. Um, and as you know, they can be a little wicked from time to time. Uh, I, I, I've been on social media for a long time, and and I've kind of gotten desensitized to the trollery. That's been really helpful. Just just being able to say, hey, you know. There are haters in the world, and that's just the way it is. And um, that those some of those haters are in media power positions. What else would you expect? I think the the most for me it has been an, an awakening journey. There's no question. Uh, I never I didn't seek this. I never expected it. Um, I find myself at the center of this storm of the resistance. That's what it is, really. Um, and uh, I'm still amazed. But um, it has it has profoundly changed my view of the information that we receive on a daily basis and how much I find myself, me and, and many others in my, in my world, uh, you know, Mickey Willis is another one, right? Plandemic. Okay, so I went and did a shoot with Mickey for the Plandemic 3 series and, and had a chance to talk to him. He comes from a liberal Southern California background, Simi Valley, you know, hardcore, uh, progressive California. And and then he went through this when he, when he basically got rejected by all of his old colleagues because of Plandemic 1 and decided to just get out of Dodge and move here to Austin. Um, and uh, he's he's another one that's had this journey of of experiencing what what is really you know the fist that's inside that glove, and um, many many others. I think that's going to be one of the things that comes out of this, and that's a really hopeful message going into the new year, is that um, there's a growing cohort of people that are increasingly aware of how thoroughly we've been manipulated. So you'd say you've been red-pilled? Uh, in, like, multidimensional red-pilled. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I thought I was red-pilled. You know, I, I, well, I, I've been on the inside for so long and seen Tony Fauci's machinations for so long. It's how I, you know, I, my that's my origin story, was the initial AIDS crisis starting in '83, when I was at Davis, and um, so I saw the hardball politics, and and then you know that's the next big chapter in my origin story, is experiencing big science at the Salk Institute and ending up with a nervous breakdown and PTSD. Okay, so I've I, it's not that I haven't been aware of of that 
but I had not been aware before of of the information control that is globally coordinated. I mean, the, the Trusted News Initiative is profound. What that means, that has become the Ministry of Truth, full on. I mean, it's, Christy, another thing, I was talking to another podcast the other day, a small uh, local one in Tennessee, and um, a very intellectual woman. And we got talking, and I said, you know, I, because I was fast-tracked, you know, as a young person, because of testing and things like that, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I was reading 1984, um, Brave New World, um, uh, you know, those kinds of books and the Greek classics. And I got a th question of why, why, I, why it was so easy for me to kind of break free of the assumptions and see through the media manipulation. I think that was part of it. It's deep in my soul. It's like, you know, wired into my childhood brain. And, um, but, but we are seeing full-on Orwellian Ministry of Truth now. There's no holds barred. And what Twitter's doing right now, that I think, you know, with Alex Berenson's um, bold and brave lawsuit, taking on Twitter. Um, and then I've had a bunch of lawyers come to me because of, of getting uh, deplatformed or canceled, I think is really the, the right term. Uh, um, I think that we may, certainly people can't deny anymore. Yeah. There's so much evidence. And, and the CNN ratings keep slipping, yay. Um, <laughs> You know, I, maybe maybe we're going to see some change in 2022. That's a, that's a hopeful, forward-looking statement. But in light of this awareness of the propaganda and knowing what they do, it seems like you became an easy target for their buzzword of saying, like, oh, he says he's the mRNA vaccine technology inventor. You know, and they really went heavy on that and have tried to contest that. Do you do you regret saying mRNA no. vaccine inventor? Matter of fact, uh, Jill, my wife, Dr. Jill Glasspool, is, uh, uh, she attacks me for not being forceful enough, okay? <laughs> um, and she's been my partner through all of this. She's like, no, don't back down. You did this work. I lived it with you. You were obsessed. You worked insanely hard to do this. I remember those inventions. I remember she's the one that's written this uh, big statement on the web page that recounts her version, her her, you know, vision or an experience in the first person of having lived through those events. She was rough on us as a young couple with a son, um, and so she doesn't she doesn't back down, and she's insists. For me, I was like, oh, can't we soft pedal this? I'm just getting so much flack. He's like, no, <laughs> you are not going to do that. Uh, so, you know, there's a statement behind every good man is a good woman. Um, and, and she is definitely actively transplanting uh, a steel rod into my spine on this topic. What about those that are saying, well, he's just taking this position because he's bitter that he didn't get more credit with the vaccines? You know, what's funny about all that is these detractors that are basically trying to um, delegitimize me in any way they can, they're coming at these little, picking at these little things 
Um, the good news is they haven't been able to find anything of substance in my background. I have no criminal record or any of that kind of stuff. I'm still married to the same woman, um, you know, after 42 plus years. And, and I've got, you know, I'm kind of a nat average guy, mm -hmm. uh, kids and, and all that. And so, and, and they n never um, are attacking the points made, the science, the, que the issues that I'm raising. Except us, these these uh, hired fact checkers, <laughs> and and what I've found is that it doesn't matter whether you cite the literature and you provide them with facts; they are not about the facts. I mean, we now know this from the the lawsuit against Facebook, that where the Facebook lawyers came flat out and said, "Well, we call them fact checkers, but these are really opinions." And that's what it is. It's well, and it, it went from a simple true or false, which is what you would think it would be with facts, to now they'll say something false, and the reason is because misleading. <laughs> and, and so how do you make that determination? So it's, it, they're even trying to mark things false that they're trying to put into a gray area, which makes And I think no part sense. of the problem is that they now have developed, because this, this is a new strategy. Right, this whole paid fact checker by Facebook, and um, now Reuters interest. It's important to understand that Thomson Reuters is now integrated into Twitter as Twitter's official fact checker. And you may or may not remember back in the day when I pointed out the first thing that got me kicked off LinkedIn was this post in which I pointed out that the chairman of the board of Thomson Reuters also sits on the board of Pfizer. And I just asked the simple question Does this look like a conflict of interest? I was prompted by a, a Reuters fact check attack on me that was, you know, inappropriate and incorrect. And I was just kind of a little bit pissed at Thomson Reuters. <laughs> but that's been part of this learning curve of, of, um, of seeing again and again and again how the game is played. But this business of hiring um, Logically AI, these small pop-up firms, I mean, Logically AI is run by a guy whose main claim to fame before this was he was an unsuccessful garage band a guitarist. I mean, that's, that's it. Um, that's as near as I can find in terms of his background. But he gets these big contracts from Facebook, and, and it's, they're, they're unabashed. They're guns for hire. They will, they will say and attack and do whatever it is that they get paid to do. They're hired guns. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not about truth and facts, and, and you know that because the people they hire, I mean, they're basically untrained, haven't graduated from college, or if they did, it was in something, in humanities or something like this. Or the, or the head of the Trusted News Initiative is actually, a, I think, has a bachelor's in, in humanities, has no background in science. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Yeah, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so, so in terms of this uh, trying to delegitimize me, it's, I knew that this was the price that was going to be paid. Mm -hmm. I knew going into this that my life would change. When, when, when Steve Kirsch and Brett Weinstein and I sat down in Brett's studio in Portland, we all knew that that was a turning point and our lives would never be the same. And that is absolutely the case. But I wanted to ask you about that because that's when I first started finding out about you and, and watching you was from that dark course podcast and then it's been interesting to see 
you evolve like along the way from I feel like more soft-spoken to now you're really out there fighting and uh, what has been the biggest epiphany to you or, or biggest impression made since then in watching all this pandemic public health policy play out? There was when I did the um, uh, the little European tour where the International COVID Summit happened in Rome and we spoke in the Roman Senate and and I saw the press that was coming out in Italy about that and and got to see this these practices of hunting physicians and delegitimizing and and weaponizing these terms like anti-vaxxer in that case we were r rigorous in not speaking about vaccines because the senator that had invited us to speak in the Roman Senate had said okay I'm gonna do this but you have to agree not to talk about vaccines because that's verboten, okay? And you can only talk about early therapy. So that's what we did. But the press still attacked us as anti-vaxxers, okay? So that it was it was clearly a decoupling of reality in, in what was being presented. And so that was kind of an epiphany. I got labeled as a terrorist and uh, one of the dirty dozen and all that kind of language that we hear here in the States seeing it play out in the Italian press, and then going from Italy to Portugal. And I was pulled into uh, a group of, of influencers, you know, politicians, judges, um, high-status healthcare providers, um, intellectuals in Portugal, and had two long evenings with them over dinner and round tables and that kind of stuff with a journalist. And uh, the other one that was just hit me like a brick was this one woman in the Q&A after our roundtable said to me, we've always believed the FDA and the CDC to be the gold standard for drug development and purity and um, efficacy, et cetera, for the world. And we now know that it's corrupt. Mm. And when she said that, I'd never had that kind of realization. It hadn't entered my mind to be that blunt and and that that one was a big epiphany that the realization that the rest of the world was perceiving the United States HHS system as completely compromised by pharma and that was a big one but then there's been a ton of ones you know along the road you talk about me becoming it more outspoken I've seen that with my peers too so for instance Peter McCullough is is uh, he's kind of chilled out a little bit but when you're attacked all the time and you have all of this weaponized information against you and in no respect i mean i'm i'm mr malone uh you know who claims to have invented i mean they all this language the kind of yellow classic yellow journalism language mm -hmm. to have it all deployed against me uh is in absolutely no respect for what i actually did and they never cite all the patents. I mean, they just gloss over all that. And and the I knew that uh, it's long been the practice among some to lobby for the Nobel Prize through through the press. I was told that I needed to do that. Mm -hmm. And then I called up a buddy at the Karolinska and he says, no, 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 we don't care about all that. We have a rigorous evaluation process. Don't even worry about it. But to have that, um, deployed against me 
by people that came a decade later from what I did, people that I actually coached when they did their first RNA delivery stuff, I brought to a, a conference in Annapolis that I had set up so that they could interact with the others. Um, and, and to see the methodical um, progression of media manipulation by Pfizer and UPenn to try to get Carrico and Weissman the Nobel Prize, that, you know, watching that play out, and this is what had really lit up Jill, was basically them, it's, it's a, what do they call it in, in military, um, you know, false honor or whatever, false valor, right? That, that somebody tries to take credit for, you know, something that somebody else did in battle. Um, it's, it, and, and seeing that actively promoted through the Boston Globe, the New York Times, CNN, uh, and in the European press, and, and kind of experiencing that in the first person to kind of have this huge part of my life stripped away from me as if it never existed. I'm told that it didn't exist, um, it, that I didn't do the things that I did, that the, pat, you know, the patents that ha all have my name on it are irrelevant and they don't even cite them, and they always miscite the papers. The, um, the, the manipulation of Wikipedia was another one that was a real eye-opener. And tracking that down and seeing how methodical that has become, uh, this just, I guess it's been a series of epiphanies that that um, have, have made me realize that there's no upside to just being circumspect and trying to be a nice guy in this environment. This is, this is full on media warfare, information warfare, political warfare, 21st century, like we've never seen before, and, uh, and coordinated globally. The other thing for me has been um, the, the personal journey I, of, of coming to terms with what the World Economic Forum really represents. And, and I really resisted that, you know, I was, people initially were coming to me talking about the Great Reset. And I was like, oh, this is crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That and, sounds like a conspiracy theory. It sure sounds like a conspiracy Yeah, yeah. Great but, Reset. Yeah, but then it's all documented. And then you see it being deployed. Mm. And uh, a group of Canadians on a podcast the other day sent me some links from WEF to a, a site, this is one of the last things I tweeted before, um, uh, and, and it had a extremely detailed map of all of the policy positions and the actions that the WEF was taking for a huge range of topics, not the least of which is COVID-19. And it's kind of a, 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 it's, it's a public document that clearly states everybody that's in our little clique, in our club, these are the things that we will think, these are the things that we will say, this is how we will act. And that one was kind of like the icing on the cake. That was, that was a, oh, here it is. You know, this is, they're proud of it. Mm -hmm. They don't hide it. This is, this is the vision. It is a full-on globalist totalitarian vision. Um, with the money in control. And and uh, the whole, I did a lot of political science when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s 
And I had read things like about books about um, transnationalism in the New World Order. I found that fascinating but confusing. How, how, could, how could this possibly happen? And now to see it playing out in real time and uh, in a way in which national sovereignty governments are increasingly irrelevant. Um, yeah, uh, that's, you know, that's the thing that folks got to wake up about. This is not about the vaccine. The vaccine is a symptom. It's much bigger. We talked about LinkedIn. We've talked about the hit piece of the Atlantic. Now you're... Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and we, that was easy to, to tear apart. And now we're seeing, you know, this deplatforming on Twitter after having over half a million followers and Reuters coming it's, it's after 5, you. It's 520,000 at the end. That's, that's uh, yeah. I don't know. I, like I said, I, I wouldn't be so sure that's done and over with. We've seen other people deplatform. Oh, it was a mistake. So we'll see what happens with that. But Reuters is going, and like you said, it's an information warfare. So Reuters is now coming after you with, with a fact check, particularly on um, the piece about risk-reward benefit with children. So you're fighting back with information. So how? tell me about that and how that's going. So having had the experience now of being subjected to this, uh, you know, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not proper, and they don't care, right? Um, uh, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what the storyline is that they want to promote. Having had that experience now a few times and dealt with the fact checkers and dealt with this young reporter at Atlantic Monthly um, and seeing how that all plays out. Um, for instance, when, when Peter Navarro and I wrote the op-ed and put it in the Washington Times, which, by the way, was the thing that triggered that Atlantic Monthly piece, in retrospect, it's now clear that that was intended to shut me down because I was starting to speak at that point mm -hmm. about policy and criticize the Biden policy. And and the criticism, by the way, that I was making, the, the, the proposal that I was putting out was essentially that of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, which is these three uh, fringe epidemiologists. Fringe. I mean, uh, they, yeah. they're from Harvard, Stanford, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, no, but they're fringe. Yeah, right. Uh, both professors. Um, yeah, so... So having dealt with this, the question, so I get this new fact checker attack by the Reuters fact checker team. It sounds very official. Mm -hmm. um, and they have spoken to the MHRA and the MHRA has these comments that it listed. So this is the equivalent of the FDA in Great Britain, which by the way, up until the beginning of the year was not doing any FDA type regulatory work. It was all being done by the Central European Union. So they're actually newbies at this, okay? And so they put out this statement uh, to Reuters that they were quoting that was intrinsically full of falsehoods. Like they said, for instance, there have been no pediatric deaths. Well, that took about two seconds to prove that false. Um, you can cite the, if nothing else, you can cite the multiple media pieces coming out of Vietnam with the four kids that died from the Pfizer jab. Okay, so that, and, and we... I reached out to my network and I got a huge volume of information about all the pediatric deaths and in VAERS and Yellow Card, Tesslory Health. I mean, I, it was, so the question, the question was, is, was there a way to flip the script on the fact checkers? And so I consulted with these media analysts and, and uh, media warriors that I work with that wish to remain um, confidential. 
uh, because they run big companies. And uh, we came up with a strategy. Because what happens is you'll write back to these guys and you'll say, well, here's the citation, here's the citation, here's the citation, and they'll ignore it. And they'll go ahead and put out whatever attack and they'll say, you know, well, Dr. Malone cited some irrelevant documents that aren't properly peer reviewed or whatever. They'll trash whatever you put out, yeah. right? Because it's not about evaluating truth. It's about enforcing the narrative. Um, so what we did, and, and I invite anybody to, to adopt this strategy that's under this kind of pressure, is I sent in a very terse, brief quote to the fact checkers. And I said, basically, thank you so much for the opportunity to respond. And, uh, you know, always trying to be nice because it's going to go public. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find the answers uh, that you're looking for, the information that you're seeking at this website, Bang, mm -hmm. okay, which is linked as the children's vaccine tab on our website, rwmalonemd.com. So Jill busted her can. <laughs> on, I mean, I had right. we had a we had a day and a half to flip this thing because they gave us a short timeline. They'll spring this stuff on you, and they're like, "Oh, well, by you know, give us the answer by the end of the day or tomorrow or something," you know. And then we've got this piece written, um, and I'm like, "Oh, great, just what I need." Um, and so what we did was I reached out through my network. Hundreds of of people and pieces of information came back in, and. We built, Jill built a website while I was shuttling over here to do the interview. Um, she just did amazing work, built this detailed website, collated all this information in a tabular form, structured it according to the, to the critiques that Reuters had provided, clipped in, there's a page on Reuters fact check that clips in the actual email from them mm -hmm. um, and uh, clips in the, the legal challenge that Tess Laurie and company have just filed against MHRA because they're off the rails. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and clipped in uh, Steve Kirsch's very nice video summarizing the Trusted News Initiative and, and just bang, 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 went through all of their various points, hundreds of references, and an enormous list of all the footballers and high-performance sports people that are, you know, in their late teens through early 20s that have dropped dead on the field. Um, so, and, and then the, all the VAERS reports of pediatric deaths, this is the U.S. database, um, collated on all there and then just provided a pointer. And uh, they can cite that or not, you know, but if they're gonna say, Malone gave us a quote and here it is, it leads them right to the website, yeah. and anybody that wants to look at that data can see it. And then, you know, thanks to you and others, now I have, now I'm able to, to go to the world and say, well, this was the attack that came at us from Reuters. This was the fact-checking incidents that they, that they um, hit us with on short notice. And here's how we responded. You can evaluate the data yourself. And what that does is it puts it in a situation where they're, as my colleague said, that this senior guy, he said, oh, they've, they've made the first mistake in media. Um, you don't give life to a bad story, <laughs> right? And so instead of a clip on Neil Oliver on GB News, now you've got a big international thing where, where all this media has, this information has been collated, pulled from scientists from all over the world and made available to the public.
so I think that that's that's a whether it's going to work. I don't know, but we this is asymmetric warfare. We're basically in a guerrilla warfare situation, and we got to play it smart because what I'm seeing is the other side is generally not very smart. <laughs> um, they're they have they have a big hammer. They've got all kinds of resources, but they don't seem to be very bright. Well, isn't it interesting that you have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with his book with 2,200 citations or somewhere around there, and you have Dr. Fauci just saying, oh, well, he is a disgrace to the Kennedy family. It's like, okay, wait, 2,200-plus citations versus he's a disgrace. <laughs> no. Yeah, and then CNN attacked Bobby. Um, uh, you know, it's... Um, Bobby is is an amazing person. This is not his first battle. Uh, um, but the the attempts to leg delegitimize him have been going on for a long time, and uh, and it takes a toll on him too. This this latest piece that came out like that was I driving before, a wedge between him and his wife evolved in your thinking. Was there ever a time that you were suspect of Robert? F. Kennedy Jr. and his thoughts? I bought into Bobby is an uh, anti-vaxxer. Right, so you, you know? yourself bought uh, it's, into it's, it. it's, the, it's what we all get put into our brains, right, all the time. It's pushed into our brains, these stereotypes. So you stereotypes. don't feel that way now? No, absolutely not. I spent a lot of time with him. He's a, he's a true hero. I, I think he ought to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I think that what he has done with the water keepers initiative. Remember that's was his big thing was water purity um, all over the world. And um, then taking on children's health uh, and, and just insisting that the studies be done, the data being done, digging in and uncovering what, how profound the lack of information about vaccine safety in children is. And once, once he started taking that position, then of course, particularly mothers with vaccine-damaged children flocked to him, just like the vaccine-damaged are flocking to Steve Kirsch. I mean, Steve is another example of somebody that didn't ask for this. Um, and he has now been pushed into a, a defensive crouch and, and he is on the attack. But what people don't know is the guy's got a big heart he is he is a classic Silicon Valley engineer with all the trimmings, but but he has a big heart and he has taken in a bunch of vaccine damaged people and given them jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I I think uh, that's that gets to my point that this is bringing people together in a in a really good way, um, and. I'm proud to be part of the community, but Bobby, I I think he is an American hero. I I feel really strongly about that, and um, he is a powerful intellect. He's a powerful legal intellect. People don't realize the Monsanto lawsuit. He was central to that over Roundup. Um, the 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 man has um, fought diligently on behalf of the American people his entire life. And to think that he has done that with his life, coming, I mean, can you imagine the psychological trauma as a young child of having both your uncle and your father assassinated? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I, I couldn't have dealt with that. I mean, to come through that and to become a, a true information warrior like he is and a defender of, of humanity, uh, I, I think it's an amazing journey that he's been on. And then I can tell you that this book took a lot out of him. He, he was totally focused on this book and, and sacrificed family time children, his new wife, everything. He was, he was totally focused on getting this book right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, there's no reviews. There has been no retort. There's been no statement by Dr. Fauci. Um, there has been no pushback other once than again, <laughs> yeah, other than the ad hominem attacks, but in terms, once again, in terms of the substance of what he's documenting. There's a lot of parallelism with my own case, but in, you know, it's not about me, but it shows the way the system is set up and these kind of, that's, that's part of the thing about being able to uh, think through how to fight this stuff is they have the standard playbook and they go to it. They just do the same things over and over again. They don't think it through. And um, so that makes it easy to anticipate what they're going to do. And as I said to Rogan, who's, of course, a martial arts um, uh, specialist, that I said, Joe, you understand using the energy of the enemy against them. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way we have to think. We have to be smart about this. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like it all comes back to the children. Do you think that, and wanting to protect children, do you think that that is what broke the camel's back or whatever that saying is, um, as far as getting you off Twitter is, is your pointing out like the risk reward benefit so, with the children? So fortunately I had some Twitter tabs open when it happened and I haven't refreshed those. So I still have a record of the last tweets I sent out. One was a video by David Martin talking about exposing the faces of the people that are behind all this. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's become pretty radicalized and outspoken. And then the the last one was uh, a substack that Jill and I put out, uh, Jill, Dr. Jill Glassman Malone, my wife yeah. um, and partner. And uh, it, it was centered around um, this really powerful video that the Canadian COVID Care Alliance group put out, extremely well produced, that just rigorously documents bang, 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 all the malfeasance and data manipulation that went into the Pfizer studies. And it's, it's stuff that we all knew. And, you know, you've, you've, I, you know, oh, I tweeted this out or I tweeted that out or whatever. And the other guys did too. And we've all talked about this, that, and the, but seeing it assembled mm -hmm. in a clear, coherent way in a single video and, and explaining the, the nuances of the data manipulation and how it was done in ways that everybody can understand, that was the final straw. And, and when I, I watched, I carefully watched that video, everything in there was factual. So you think that that is, you hit the mark, so you had to go. <laughs> so so it's, is, was it that? Um, was it that uh, Reuters, Thomson Reuters, which is now the fact checker for Twitter, um, has this uh, fact check initiative coming at me and they decided to do this? Was it the video that has gone viral, the little four minute clip that's on globalcovidsummit.org where I talk about 
basically say, parents, you better think twice, because if, you're if your child is vaccine damaged, it can't be fixed, right? And so you better be sure, because you're going to have to live with it the rest of your lives. That thing um, was another one that I, I sat on a, literally sat on a beach in Puerto Rico, and me and this other media, senior media guy composed it. And, um, and then we recorded it in, in Puerto Rico, and then we did a uh, kind of a roundtable open session with about 50 physicians and parents and stuff in Puerto Rico. And that thing has just, it is kryptonite. Um, that, that provoked a, a direct attack on Facebook by the Israeli Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. um, attacks from the major radio station in Spain that happens to be owned by BlackRock. Attacks in the media um, in Italy. I mean, that they wouldn't be acting like that if if that video wasn't striking a nerve. Uh, so when when all that happened, my media colleague was like, "Oh, this means we're winning." <laughs> um, yeah, the the Israeli one was fascinating because so the Israeli Ministry of Health comes out and does this usual slander, you know, all the same talking points um, on Facebook. And I have enough fans in Israel, apparently, who knew, um, <laughs> that, that apparently uh, in, in, in Hebrew, right, it's all in Hebrew, can't read it, um, that, that the responses to the Facebook page were, were slamming the Ministry of Health for what they had done. Then a journalist picked this up. Um, he put out a piece um, talking about me. He interviewed me and did an hour-long podcast with me like this format. Okay, then he got one of my main detractors that had been writing this to correspond with me directly and guarantee that they would put out what I wrote back. And so what I got from him, because he's a big fan of Carrico and Weissman, that's really the subtext here, okay? And he's, like, been on stage with them and given them this big award that they, they get, like, a million dollars from the Israeli government. And uh, so he was defending this, and he, and he made a series of statements that were just objectively false. It was trivial for me to go through and, and say, no, here's the facts, here's the facts, here's the, fa here's the patents, whatever. Um, and uh, all that got printed. So it's, it's this, that's why I'm saying this kind of, you can use their energy against them, but you gotta be smart about it. And, um, and I think, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the hill that I've chosen to die on is stopping mandated jabs in kids. Well, I wanted to ask about that and push back a little bit because I've gotten pushed back. One of the biggest concerns and document it's documented that there's this concern over myocarditis or heart health problems. When you raise that about the jab, the pushback that you get is, well, it's 37 times higher chance that kids will get myocarditis from COVID than the jab. Is there I any haven't seen that data. Is there any truth to that? No, I know, the, I'm like, the, where the, is this the, coming so from? So when they say that kind of stuff, you got to go back and say, okay, show me the paper. Um, and there are... There, there is literature out there that is very biased in both directions, mm -hmm. okay? But this is, this is the beauty of what Jill did on the website, is there is over 100 references there about myocarditis in kids. Um, the, the incidence rate of myocarditis in children from uh, SARS-CoV-2 is tiny. The incidence rate in young men, boys, as documented in the Hong Kong 
uh, comprehensive study, huge study, looking at hospitalized myocarditis in children after receiving the vaccine, I think it's all Pfizer, is one in 2,700. That's a big number. And that's hospitalized myocarditis. So then what they say is, well, okay, that's, that's mild. That's, you know, minor. There's, you talk to cardiologists and they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the mortality rate of myocarditis in general before all this happened, the five-year mortality rate is like 27%. Um, that this, I mean, what do you think these, these footballers are dying of? These high-performing well, athletes. That's the other thing is like, well, how do you know it's not COVID? And, and well, that's why you have to track it down. But so the thing is that they they use the the argument that they will attack us for using. They'll say, well, you haven't proven um, that these are associated. Um, but then they'll turn right around and make a blanket assumption that they're not vaccine associated, that they're associated with the virus itself. Um, so it's kind of like they want to have it both ways, mm-hmm. which is why I, you know, my my position, I have to stay centered on the data yeah. and and say, here's the manuscripts, here's the data, here's the various reports, here's the yellow card reports again and again and again. And with the with those reports, the way we put it out, you can read what uh, the history was as reported on VAERS. You just have to click on it and you can well, see for yourself. Well, that's obviously become demonized as well. Every time you bring up VAERS, they say, oh, well, that's not they, vetted. They, yeah, they'll they'll demonize it when it's to their advantage, and then they'll exploit it when that's also to their advantage. So um, it it's, again, they're, they're wanting to have it both ways. The thing about that that whole thread is this is this is my core argument with all this. We wouldn't be having our society torn apart if the FDA and the CDC had done their job. The real problem here is that we don't have decent data. If we had decent data, if they had done their job and insisted that Pfizer do the, the multi-year study that it had initiated rather than killing it after a few months and jabbing all the controls, I mean, that was an intentional strategy. There's a lot of ways you can manipulate clinical trials. And that's the thing, too, that I've been wondering about. I am definitely no statistician. I'm terrible with numbers. That's why I speak and write for a living. But one thing that has had me thinking is, like, just how easy is it to manipulate data and to manipulate numbers? I mean, even as far as the the myocarditis thing had me thinking, okay, well, even if we were to agree that there would be a greater chance with problems or myocarditis in children if they got COVID, are they factoring in, well, if they, the, if they got COVID part? <laughs> like, first you have to factor in- Have they in, proven that they actually had the disease? Yeah, right, I mean, and, 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 and is, I mean, are they factoring in how difficult it is for children to get COVID or, or, or COVID in a have, bad have way ser- to begin Yeah, with. serious COVID. Right, So exactly. that's, that's why I always couch that in healthy, normal children shouldn't have mandated vaccines. I believe nobody should have vaccine mandates for these experimental products. I believe it is absolutely contrary to the Nuremberg Code, the Helsinki Agreement, the Common Rule, the Belmont Report, etc. Okay, it is lawless behavior that's going on, full stop. And actually we've got a, a section on that webpage that I talked about that is legal analysis of why it's lawless, why it's illegal what they're doing. Um, and you know that's going to go to the Supremes, and we'll see what they have to say. But um, this this 
it is easy to manipulate the data. So I'll give you a specific example that relates to kids, since we're talking about kids. So in the original Pfizer trial, there was about as little north of 2,000 children enrolled in two groups, placebo and experimental, so about 1,000 each. Mm -hmm. So in that, they claimed that there were no serious adverse events in the children. In that, there was one child, Maddie DeGarry, 12-year-old girl, and she is listed in the official data base that was provided to the FDA by Pfizer as having gastrointestinal distress. Okay? What about who? So then this comes out, and her mother starts speaking up. No, that's not true. She had a seizure, then she became paralyzed, She's now wheelchair bound and having to be fed through an NG tube, a nasogastric tube. Okay, that is not gastric distress. No. It's not a stomach ache. Okay. There are all kinds of ways that remember I'm a this is what I do for a living, clinical trials and regulatory affairs. There's all kinds of ways that you can tweak databases at different stages when you when you do the database cleaning and scrub and resolution and write the clinical trial final study report. And you know, you can you can craft that study report in all kinds of ways. You can highlight the things that look good and downplay or stick into obscure appendices, the stuff that look bad. And in fact, all of that is done by Pfizer. That's the thing that the Canadian little video really, really well documents. And then we have this new uh, disclosure from the whistleblower here in Texas about the contract research, clinical contract research organization that was running those studies for Pfizer and all the malfeasance and manipulation that was done there. Okay, so this is all coming out. The, the wheels are coming off the bus here. It's a question of, and normally, so if I was doing that, it was a study that I was principal investigator on, or a a clinical contract research organization that I was working for, and that stuff came out, I would expect to get a 483 warning letter and probably lose my ability as a principal investigator to run a clinical trial in the future. That's what I would expect to have happen. That's why I resigned from Alchem when it became clear that the Northwell study that was funded with this contract that I wrote early on for famotidine, that's why I resigned is because they, I could tell that they didn't know what they were doing and they were going to get into trouble and lo and behold they did and what happened that's a great case study what happened in that case well the fda came in and audited them and demonstrated clearly that they didn't know what they were doing they weren't following good clinical practice and they were mismanaging the study and the study was put on hold and barta didn't continue to fund it etc cetera, etc cetera. that's the way things are normally supposed to happen and in the case of pfizer they can do no harm and the way that, that it used to be about a decade ago that there was this neat little trick that pharma was playing. Pharma used to run all their own clinical trials in-house. And then for financial reasons, and I think also liability, they outsourced it. So that's why all these clinical contract research organizations popped up all over the country and all over the world is because the pharma basically said, okay, we're no longer going to have this in-house. We're going to provide oversight, and you guys are going to do it. Okay, And what that allowed them to do was when data got manipulated, when bad stuff happened in a clinical trial, it wasn't being done properly, the pharma could say, oh, it's not our problem. We didn't do that. You know, wash your hands. It's those bad guys over there. Okay, um, 
and you know maybe that company would get dissolved and all the people go to work for another one. I mean, there's enough of these around, right? So that was the ecosystem. And the FDA shut it down and they said, no, 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 we're changing the rules. The sponsor, Ergo Pharma, that's regulatory language, has the liability for whatever happens with its subcontractors, okay? So what that means is that all of this stuff is coming back on Pfizer. And the FDA and the CDC are playing the classic, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil game. That's not going to be sustainable. And it's starting, it's, it's, uh, it's starting to crack, and the information's coming out. It's working through the legal system, but it takes time. Yeah. It's interesting, interesting that you say starting to crack. I've noticed that just over the past week, maybe two, it seems like the administration and um, the CDC, some of them are walking things back. So you have Biden saying, um, no, it's up to the states. Even yeah, though I'm that was classic. Even though I'm, gonna, I'm still going <laughs> to pursue federal yeah. mandates, but it's, yeah. um, it's up to the states. Then you have- We can't solve this problem. The states have to. Right. Oh, by the way, we're going to restrict your availability of monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, exactly. So it's <laughs> like, to speak. But I mean, just the fact that he walked that, that back a little bit or said that, and then um, you had the CDC, uh, a spokesperson saying, um, okay, no cloth masks don't work. And then you also had, there's so much oh, that I had to write. Oh, shortening the some, quarantine time? That's another uh, yep, one. That's an, see, that's what I'm, it's, <clears throat> it felt like there were so many that I was like trying to write them down. Oh, and then Rochelle Walensky saying, admitting PCR tests oh, might continue Oh, the PCR to... story is a huge scandal. Um, what that shows, you were talking about the data integrity. What that means is that the incidence rate of COVID disease and death, because what they said was anybody that dies in the hospital, Anybody that dies that can be shown to be COVID, SARS-CoV-2 positive by a false PCR test, right? That was the counts standard. Counts as a death. Counts as a death from COVID. What that means is the bottom number in the ratio for anything, you know, the incidence of death, all this huge scare that is, is the basis for all the fear porn. You know, you're all going to die, right? That's justified the... the um, emergency use authorizations and everything else um this this statement that's about to expire in mid-january that is underlying all this this emergency declaration that's all built it's a house of cards and the cdc is now starting to come clean about that they're not talking about the implications they're just saying oh well the pcr uh, assay was bumped and we shouldn't have used it well thank you but you know now, why don't you fix all the other stuff that is the consequence of your bad judgment? But that's what I mean. All of this is coming out and being, like, in some ways walked, walked back. And it just makes you wonder, what are they up to? Is it because the story's cracking, or is it because they're going to push something else on us? It, it, it just makes well, you wonder. Well, that's like Zeb Zelenko is scared silly about smallpox. Mm -hmm. um, remember, he was the guy that originally wrote the letter to Trump advocating for hydroxychloroquine. He was one of the early adopters of early treatment. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. Um, I, I can't. So, um, Joe is pressing me on the, you know, the what what are they thinking kind of questions. And it's like, Joe, I can't get in their heads. I'm not going to do that. 
all I can say is this is what I'm observing. These are the facts. This is their behavior. This is what they're saying. I can't infer what their motives are. Uh, and, and I think that's the case here. And, and I was on Newsmax last night, as you know, and uh, they played a bunch of clips of Tony Fauci coming out with the um, scare and fear porn about children and Omicron and then recently walking that back because the data aren't there. I knew the data weren't there when he said it. Well, and then he said we should probably have um, it be required or vaccine mandates for just between interstate travel. And then he walked that back, too. So that's why it's been interesting. When he came out with that, I was like, hmm, I wonder what the airline industry, I'll bet the airline industry right now is going ring, ring. <laughs> hey, Joe, <laughs> get a clue. This is going to destroy us. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen in 2022, but there's some encouraging signs. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, as you know, I try really hard to look for the silver lining in things. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if this whole trauma that we've been through nationally and globally leads to an awareness of how interconnected we are and uh, the need for healing and the need for community and the importance of integrity and the importance of human dignity. If, if this can lead to an awareness, that's, that's people, that's kind of the um, perhaps naive Pollyannish uh, hopeful position uh, in, in a response to the Great Reset is people use the term the Great Awakening. Are we going to see people, you know, one of the things for me that I, and I've experienced this before again and again, because I've been in these outbreaks before, is you get at the front edge and you're in an information bubble and you don't realize that you're perceiving things that the average person, because they're not in that moment, in that stream of data that you're just writing, you know, like a bronc, okay? Um, they're not in that, and they don't. So then you can say things to them, and the in and they'll act like you're um, from Mars. You know <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And then six you know six months later, or sixty days later, or sometimes even thirty days later, then they're suddenly like, oh yeah, I get it. Like the lab leak hypothesis is a great example of that. And um, so it's it. I have to kind of not allow myself to be too cynical about people because they're just people. They're just living their lives and taking care of their kids and trying to keep their job and not get fired because they did or didn't take the jab or haven't taken the third jab or the fourth jab or whatever the thing is, right? Um, they're just in, living their lives. They're not all wrapped up in all of this. Um, and so I think hopefully, um, that persuadable middle is starting to see more and more the journey that I've had and many of my colleagues have had and you've had in terms of understanding what corporate media is really all about and how it is centrally controlled and how it is built as another tool for these multinational corporate interests. I mean, they've intentionally gone out and strategically acquired media assets so they can push their media, their messages mm -hmm. And the, the thing that's the tell is the investments 
don't make sense from a strict business ROI, return on investment standpoint. You know, it doesn't really make sense that Amazon bought Washington Post. Well, they bought Washington Post for an agenda other than just making profit off the Washington Post and the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, um, these historic flagships, or the Atlantic Monthly. I mean, I used to read Atlantic at, with, under the time of James Fallows, a brilliant guy, full of insights. You know, whatever you thought of it, it was intellectually interesting and rigorous and well-thought and well-written, and, and it went under. And it got sold. It got sold to Bill Gates and Steve Jobs' widow. And why did they buy it? Because it had that brand, that flagship, and all that comes with having a monthly. Because when things are put out on a monthly as opposed to a daily, you know, the daily stuff falls off. All the monthly articles stay. They stay in, in, in digital memory in a big way. And, you know, so why, why make these investments in these failing legacy media tools? Because it's useful strategically to advance your corporate interests um, and to push whatever messaging you want to push. And in a world in which all of these firms are all basically owned by four or five major investment groups um, that have assets, you know, BlackRock's assets are greater than the largest bank in the People's Republic of China. You know, think that through, okay? These groups have become so big that they can control whether national economies. And you know, if you can control a nation's economy, you control that nation. You don't have to fire up a bullet. You need no tanks. You got them. Before we wrap up, I wanted to um, talk about the pending EUA uh, expiration and also how that may or may not relate to the march coming up at the end of the month. Thank you for that segue. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, uh, for your for your audience, for your viewers, uh, please go to www.defeatthemandatesdc.com. Okay. So on January 23rd in Washington, D.C. Now, I live uh, an hour and a half south of D.C., and January 3rd is not my preferred date to go hang out in the... <laughs> in the freezing <laughs> It's, it's going to be a march uh, between uh, Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial. So, uh, you know, the quad on January 23rd, not my idea of a good time. Bring your coats. Uh <laughs> A huge amount of capital is being put into this uh, rally, um, you know, well north of $600,000. Full security, professional security, professional organizing team. This is being done right. I got to imagine, though, that's going to make a little, some people a little bit worried or hesitant to come, seeing as other things that have happened right. at the Right, and so that's theory. why the security has been so important. That's where a lot of this capital is going, is making sure that we have, uh, you know, top-notch private security to, to control that environment so that we're not having um, incursions from hostels that would be provocateurs. Or false flag. Type. Yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the thing is, why January 23rd? There's the worldwide rally for freedom is January 23rd. So here in the States, we generally have not had big protests like have been going on all over the rest of the world. Right. Okay. So this is being done in a way that coordinates 
America with what's going on in Europe and Australia, etc. So that's why that date. Um, they're they're hiring buses. We've got rappers. High res is going to come in. <laughs> um, multiple speakers. And the point is, I'm going to just read something. This is the emphasis. This is a rally for every party, ideology, race, and background uniting together to defeat the mandates. This is about the mandates. And it's not about left or right. Vaccinated and unvaccinated, Republican, Democrat, and independent, all racial groups, this is a unity rally for America to say no to these illegal government-imposed mandates. You don't have to be anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine or jabbed or unjabbed or any of this other stuff. Let's come together and agree that it's just not okay for the government to be telling us what we have to put into our bodies and more importantly, what we have to put into our children's bodies. It's not okay for the government to be inserting itself into the family. That has got to stop. So that's that's what the rally's about, and thank you for teeing that up. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, now there was another aspect to that. I got oh, off on that uh, riff because it's coming up that the EUA is. Oh yeah. So the uh, so then the question you, you know when you're sitting like you and I, where we're constantly sensitive to what's going on in media, and you see this sudden surge of of reports in the media, a lot from New York media, talking about Omicron and Omicron's danger in children. I mean, just again and again and again and again, it's coming out, okay? And it's all um, grossly disproportionate. It's not connected to anything real. There's no papers out there. It's totally inconsistent with the research. They'll take some anecdotal report from some clerk in a hospital or something like that and make it into a huge thing. Um, and, you know, and talk about anecdotal data. When you see that kind of coordinated behavior, folks like you and me say to ourselves, oh, what's going on here? Okay, why are they suddenly pushing the fear porn about Omicron when Omicron is very benign? There's hardly any deaths worldwide from Omicron. Okay, why is that? And so you, then you got to start thinking, hmm, there must be an ulterior motive. And conveniently, maybe this is just circumstance. Maybe that has nothing to do with that. But the two-year declaration of emergency expires on January 15th. And if that is allowed to expire and it's not renewed, then the, the legal basis for all the emergency use authorization language falls away. And so I think that the government is in a position, I mean, there's a, these weird paradoxical incentives. Um, I think the government right now is incentivized to push fear about this virus because they have to have sufficient fear in order to, to justify um, reinitiating the emergency declaration. And that comes up in mid-January. Now let's see if that happens. That's a forward-looking statement. I don't know if that's what they're thinking. I don't know if that's what's going to happen. But I asked some legal experts to dig into this, and I sent you the link to, to document whether or not that's what's going on. And it appears that's the case, is that there is an expiration of the declaration that provides the legal underpinning 
the declaration of emergency that provides the legal underpinning for all of this other stuff where they have basically disregarded the law. Um, and uh, so let's see what happens. But that is, you know, that's like these perverse incentives that hospitals have to kill people. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. That's not a nice way to say it. It's not very pretty. But hospitals get paid to have people die of COVID. And it's not a small figure. It's a lot of money. They, there is a perverse incentive for hospitals to not want early treatment. Okay? Because then people don't go to the hospital and they don't get their big plus up from the federal government. And there, there's a bunch of, we call, you know, you've been around long enough, you know the term blowback. Something is used in the intelligence service all the time. These unintended consequences of bureaucratic decisions, because you know, often it's not the sharpest tools in the shed that are making these calls and making these decisions on the fly. And there's a huge stack of bad policy decisions that have driven what is now one of the worst mortality rates in the world in the United States. I mean, we all think, oh, we got the best medical system, and Tony Fauci is a hero. No, I'm sorry. Look at the data. Yeah. It's literally one of the worst. Well, it's about that time. Is there any final word, final thought? Christy, it's, it's just, it's been a lot of fun and a <laughs> pleasure to, to share this journey with you. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for the chance to just sit and talk a little bit yes. here in the studio and not over Skype and <laughs> Zoom and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, and all and, the technical difficulties. Uh, <laughs> oh, it goes on and on. Uh, uh. Um, yeah, so Happy New Year's to everybody. Let's hope it's a better 22 for all of us. And, um, and you know, be kind to each other. It's, we don't have to play in to the media really likes to set us against each other. It, it you know, sells clicks, sells soap, whatever the hell they're selling. It sells Pfizer jabs, right, <laughs> um, on CNN um, or cars or whatever the thing is, okay? Don't buy into it. We're, we're one people, we're one nation. Um, we have common purpose. We have this amazing gift of a constitution. Um, so let's, let's see if we can't um, not allow the media to hurt us like a bunch of sheep. Think for ourselves and, and rebuild community, integrity, and human dignity. Very good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Maloon. <sighs>